Hey everyone, it is good to be together and uh, a special welcome to those of you up at North Campus and to Forest and across the way in the chapel. So I know for a bunch of us that are part of this church family, you've been wondering, so how'd it go? How'd it go relative to our year-end goal and our giving? And the good news is God has been so faithful and this church has been so generous that we actually finished the year 100,000 plus cash positive. So that is really great news, yeah, thanks. So if you're new here today, we just started a new series. It's called Unexpected, it's the journey of faith. And we started last week and it's a series that is looking at the life of a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah in Genesis chapter 12 through 25. What we discovered last week is one of the things that's unexpected in the journey of faith is God, his grace, his kindness. The, the context of Genesis chapter 12 is from chapter 3 when Adam and Eve, so to speak, thumbed their nose at God and said, we think we got a better way to do life. Thank you, God. And all the way to chapter 11, when people were trying in their pride to make a name for themselves, building this tower in Babel to heaven, that people have been in rebellion, moving away from God, and yet God in his unexpected grace has been pursuing rebellious people. In keeping with his word of promise, way back in Genesis 3.15, when he said, after Adam and Eve had just wrecked it all, he said, look, not only will the curse be in play, but now to this day, my promise, and here's my promise, Eve, one of your descendants, one of your male descendants is gonna come and is gonna crush this enemy who has ruined our lives together in this world, your lives as husband and wife. And so the unexpected grace is when people are trying to make a name for themselves and they're moving away from God, God is still faithful to his promise, moving towards rebellious people, and his grace comes to an unexpected, unlikely guy named Abram. He is living in this town, city called Ur, present-day Iraq, just a couple hundred miles outside of Baghdad. And what's even more surprising is he's an idolater. He worships all kinds of gods, not the living God, the creator God. And God calls him into a relationship to be at the heart of his saving purposes for the world. Unexpected, unexpected grace from our good God in the journey of life and of faith. And what we saw last week is that faith, again, is taking God at his word, which means we're obeying his commands and we're trusting his promises. And in chapter 12, we saw that Abram had two tests. The first was a test of, would you obey my command? Because God said, Abram, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. I want you to leave everything that's familiar, your country, your people, 
and all the trappings of the life that you have here in Ur. And then as he settled in Haran, in Haran, he says, I want you to trust me that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to care for you. And I'm going to cause you to prosper and flourish. And I'm going to take you to this land. And I'm going to give you that land. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation, which is a big deal for a guy who's 75. His wife, Sarai, is 65. And they don't have any kids. And so trust me, trust me as you leave what you know to receive what you don't yet have. And he did amazing. He went and he traveled and he got to this place called Canaan. He got to this city called Shechem under the big tree there at Morah. This great oak where all these pagan people were worshiping their gods. God said and met him there. He appeared to him. He said, this is it. This is the land I was talking to you about. And he builds an altar. Then there was a second test. And that, that happened when all of a sudden this land that was his, that God promised him, was not sustaining his family because there was a famine. And so he travels down to Egypt, and this test is all about, will Abram and Sarai trust his promise? What was his promise? I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. That means I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to cause you to flourish. You're going to become a great nation, Abram. He had, his test was, am I going to trust God's promise not just in the face of famine, but in the face of great fear as he traveled down to Egypt and quickly figured this out. Oh my goodness, my wife is beautiful. The leader of that land is gonna want her to be part of his harem. And so he pawns off his wife under the pretense that she's actually just my sister to save his own neck. And he falls flat on his face. And that's where we pick up the story. And what we find today is God's unexpected grace in the face of our failures that gives us the opportunity to, 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 to do two things. Renew our trust in God. Strengthen that faith in God. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 13. So grab your Bible and turn to the first book, chapter 13. Now, as you get to chapter 13, there's 18 verses. The first four are going to point out the kindness of God in our failures that lead to the renewing of our trust. Then in verses 5 through 13, we're going to see the kindness of God in the face of our failures that helps us strengthen our faith so that we pass the next test, which is what happens in that middle section. And then at the very end, the kindness of God that would come back to Abram and renew his promise to Abram and through him to us. Verses one through four. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. So he's traveling north back up to the promised land. And Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place, right? So he's like this nomadic shepherd of his people and all their flocks until he came to Bethel, 
The house of God is what Bethel means. To the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he'd first built an altar, there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now let's just think about this whole thing of failure. And I'm talking about a, a spiritual failure. I'm talking about a failure in our relationship with God. And you go, I, I, I'm not there yet. Okay, but just, just think about it. What, what, what do you think God's response would be to you if you dropped the ball and did a face plant like Abram did down in Egypt? Think about the failures that we've had in our lifetime in this journey of faith. Maybe you don't have to think very hard. Maybe you go, man, this is this last week or this year has been this series of missteps and moving away from God. Whenever I have met somebody who's going through a really hard time, I shouldn't say whenever, often, people will talk to me as if, you know what, this is just kind of payback. I'm just reaping what I've sowed and, and this is what God does. It's just like this bad stuff that's coming back to me. That's so often our thinking. And what we have to remember today is that is not who God is. And so we would expect this guy who fell flat on his face that God would teach him a lesson. Like I've heard this a lot when people are going through a hard time. I know God's trying to teach me something. I wish I could just figure it out so I could learn it and we get through this. We go, oh man, he's gonna get it for pawning off his wife as his sister to save his own neck. Oh, he, God is gonna teach him a lesson. God is gonna discipline him. He's gonna correct him and we're waiting and we're waiting and all that we see in the storyline is, no, actually, Pharaoh gets the diseases. His family gets struck with all the sickness and Abram walks out a wealthier man than when he walked in. And he walked out with everything that he had and then some, more livestock, more goats, more sheep, more camels, and silver and gold. And we're going, wow, wasn't expecting that. And so he returns, preserved. Remember God said, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna care for you, I'm gonna protect you. He returns with greater wealth in spite of his failure. And he returns to the last place he was when he was trusting God and worshiping him, Bethel, between Ai, where he builds the altar, right? And he calls upon the name of the Lord. That's shorthand for it. He worships God for his goodness and for who he is. And he's renewing his trust and love at the very place he last had it because he lost that trust in God when he headed south to Egypt, right? Afraid, I'm not sure, I better make my own plan, trusting in his own plan. So he's renewed his faith, he's renewed his trust, his allegiance and loyalty to the creator God who's pursuing him with his grace. And we shouldn't be surprised in the midst of his renewed faith in God that there's a second test that has to do with the very last test that he failed. 
So the first test, obeying his command, A plus, Abram. The second test, trusting God's promises in the face of great fear, F minus, flat on his face. And now there's this new test. Look at it, verse 5. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. Oh, by the way, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So do you get it? They're, they're prospering. There, there is so much, so many sheep and goat, goats and so many people to feed that, that the pastures that they were around wasn't enough for Abram and his nephew Lot. Oh, and by the way, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, right? So, verse 8, Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Literally, in the original language, that means we're brothers. No, they really weren't. It was his nephew. It was his younger nephew, but no, we're brothers. We're close relatives. Abram says a lot, is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, back in Genesis 1 and 2, with the Tigris and Euphrates, right, with the rivers, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the, the reason Moses adds this, this is Moses who's writing Genesis, is to help us understand that Zoar is right next to Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, it's the very place that Lot will run to as he flees from God's judgment over those two wicked cities. So, verse 11, Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. That's a little foreshadowing. We're going to come up to that story later on in chapters 18 and 19. So the test, again, is this promised land, is it sustainable? The famine brought about the question the first time. This time, it's the opposite of scarcity. It's abundance. So the first test, will the land be sustainable, has to do with there isn't anything in the land for us to live off the land. Now there is so much that God has prospered us with, will it sustain all that God has given us? That's good to remember as we think about the journey of faith. Those are equal tests. Sometimes we only think it's the scarcity of resources, of our health, of peace in our homes right now. But other times we need to understand that the test of faith will actually come from the abundance that God has allowed to come into our lives. It's such a test. And the solution or the proposal is we've got to split up. 
we've got to divide so that we can live. That's going to be the course. So let's part company and let's remain friends, better than friends, brothers, close family. And so we know they're outside of Bethel, between Bethel and Ai, and this is a high point. And from that vantage point, they could see Bethel's up 3,000 feet, a little lower as you're moving towards Ai. And from that point, you could see right down that, that canyon, so to speak, this Wadi, they call it, down to the Jordan River Valley. Now, if you've been to Israel, you get it, that you can look in a lot of places and all that you see is a wilderness. Like, it's amazing. Like, nothing is growing. It's just rock. But then there are these little oases. There's these, these watering places. There are these fertile river valleys, like along the Jordan. And as he looked from that vantage point all around, because he had first dibs, right? Left to right. He goes, oh, it's, grow it's green there. That's good land. And we know that Abram gives Lot the first choice, even though he's the eldest and had the opportunity to take the best land. He lets Lot choose first, right? And, and there's a change going on here. In, in, in Egypt... He was desperately scheming to save his neck. He wasn't resting in God's promise. He was scheming and coming up with his own plan. Here, he's willing to give away the land because he's come to a new place as he's experienced God's grace in the face of his failure and he's resting in the promise knowing this and he's, he's going to do the same thing with with the promised son Isaac in chapter 22. He's going to do the same thing. He's trusting in the promise so that even if he gives away the land, even if he were to kill his own son, God would raise up Isaac and God would give me the land. And so he's resting and it's beautiful what we see here. He's not scheming. He's willing to give up the promised land and he's growing. He's learning. His faith is becoming stronger. We're moving from God's grace renewing his faith to God's grace building his faith, making it stronger. That's what God's grace does. That's what it can do right now for you and me in the face of our failures. Bring us to renew our trust, to build our trust. And what we see here is as his faith grows stronger, his heart grows bigger. What we see here is this magnanimous generosity in Abram's approach to what was rightly his as the elder statesman of the family. Remarkable grace. One writer says this, Abram's faith gives him the freedom to be generous. See, when we're not connected to God's grace, our hearts shrink. When we're trusting in God, believing his promises, resting in his provision, trusting that whatever is hard right now, God's gonna bring me through it and even though it's awful, he's going to work good. 
It positions our hearts to grow. We don't do life like this. We do life like this. That's going on with Abram. As God in his grace is renewing and building his faith. Now Lot, we learn something from Lot. He's making his decision based on his eyes. What does it say in the text? He looked and surveyed the land. And what did he see? A lot of rock. A lot of places where his sheep and his donkeys and his camels and whatever he has, goats, whatever, his family. It's going to be hard to find water. It's going to be hard. But man, there's a green place back there. He's making a decision on the basis of what he sees. And the text tells us he chose for himself the lush river valley. And the text tells us he set out to the east. Now, at first glance, we're going, well, okay, because that's where it was. It was to the east. And so it's just giving us directions. Ah, but there's some theological weight to this whole concept of moving to the east. It's a, the east, up to this point in Genesis, is always moving away from God. Let me give you an example. Back in chapter 3, when God moves Adam and Eve out of that garden because they can no longer live in his holy presence, it says this, 324, Genesis. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're moving out the east side, moving east, away from God's presence. Again in chapter 4. This is after Cain has killed Abel. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In chapter 11, before the people start trying to, in their pride, make a name for themselves and build this tower to the heavens, it says this, the people were moving eastward. East is moving away from God in Genesis 1 through 12. Through 13 now. Now, the caution here is the New Testament actually tells us something about this man Lot. When the New Testament tells us something about the Old Testament, our ears are perked. It's giving us more information on the story. And here's what we know about Lot from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 9: that he was a righteous man who was distressed and troubled in his soul over the wickedness of what was going on in his city, Sodom. But this righteous man, we are told in the text, made a decision on the basis of what he saw, and he chose for himself. He was thinking of himself first. And it goes on to tell us that he moves toward the cities, outside of the cities of the plain, Zoar, Sodom, Gomorrah, which are wicked cities, Moses tells us. Does he know at this point? We don't know if he knew the nature of those cities. We don't know that. We know he used to live in a city. We know he may have found it comfort in that city. Remember, Abram's left the comfort of Ur. He's left the city of Haran as he's followed God. He 
pitches his tent outside. Chapter 14, he's living inside. Chapter 19, when God sends his angels to rescue him, he has such a hard time leaving that the angels literally grab him by the hand, his two daughters, his wife, and physically pull him out of that place. The title of this message is Living on the Outskirts. I think there's a lot of us that live on the outskirts that are drawn to the edges. Abram was willing to give up the land and verse 12 tells us he ends up living in the land of Canaan which God says this is the promised land. So God's kindness in the face of failure brings the possibility for Abram and for us to renew our trust in God and to build our trust in God. Strengthens it. So the last movement then in verses 14 through 18 is all about God then in his kindness and grace renewing the promise and embellishing on the promise. See if you can see the new information that we get in verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are. Sounds like what Lot just did. Look around from where you are, to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring, not just now, but what? Forever. Verse 16, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. Before in chapter 12, he says, I'm gonna make you in a great nation. I know you don't have any kids. It's going to be a great nation. Now we get more. Oh, it's going to be so great that if you could count the dust particles on the earth, you know, it'd be as big as your family. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust and we can't, then your offspring could be counted. So great will his offspring be. So then he says this, verse 17, stake out your claim. Go Walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. You've surveyed it with your eyes. I want you to survey it with your feet so that you know every inch that you cover from the east, east to the west, the north to the south, every square inch of it, I will give it to you. So verse 18 says, So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents, there he built an altar to the Lord. So this chapter begins with his trust where he worships God. He's worshiping God throughout his life in all of life, as we like to say. Worshiping God in all of life. From the beginning to the end of this story. And God renews the covenant. And it's beautiful, right? So he says, I'm gonna make your name great. You're going to be a great nation. I mean, we're talking, if you could number the dust particles, that's how big your family's going to be. He, he's embellishing, and he said, this is, this is the land, all of it that you see. It's all yours. And by the way, he had something that we didn't know before. You're going to get it forever. You're descendants. So if the land is yours forever, then, then there's this mix of eternity in the promise, right? It's not just about land. It's about land forever. And as you chase land through the Bible, we don't have time to do it today, it lands us to the new heaven and the new earth. We're in God's presence. We have something even better than the garden at the very beginning. So Abram 
settles in Hebron. Had a great tree, just like Shechem, right, and Morah, those pagan places of worship, and he builds the altar, and there before the idolatrous people, he worships the creator God who's called him to follow in faith. And that will be ground zero for Abram. That's where he'll raise his two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. That's where Isaac and Rebekah will do life with their twins, Jacob and Esau. That's where Jacob and his 12 sons will do it. When Joseph is sent out to go look for, look for his brothers and see what's going on, he left from Hebron. And that's where King David first set up his palace. This is a strategic place in the storyline of the Bible. So what are we learning here about God? What's unexpected? His grace that is unconditional, that has no correlation to our faith, whether it's growing or waning, whether we're pulling straight A's or whether we're doing a face plant and doing an F minus. God's grace is not connected. It is not calibrated to our performance of faith. That is profound. And that's something we need to wrestle with when the voices, you know that there are tapes that are playing in our heads. Some of them, we've recorded the message. Some of them, we're believing it from other people, the enemy. And then there's God's truth. So there's false lies that say, well, God would never give you a second chance. God could never love you. He would, he would never want you to be part of his family anymore because of what you've done. This is beyond pale. You're through. God is through with you. No, he's not. Because God's grace is calibrated to who he is, not to who we are and what we've done. Who he is and what he is doing and what he will do for all of our face plants in faith where when we fall flat on our face when it comes to faith, that's another way of saying sin. And Jesus would pay for all of that going forward for Abraham, going back for us. That's what we learn about God, that his grace is calibrated to our performance. Romans 2, 4, this is so big. I love this verse. It says this, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And Titus tells us that Christ is the kindness of God personified. That Christ, the kindness of God, leads us to repentance. What does that mean? It means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of direction, to be people who are heading east away from God, and the kindness of God has us turn away. Because God in his grace is still pursuing us in his love, in his mercy. And he's not saying, oh, because you did a face plant, Mark, I'm through with you. So just keep heading east, buddy. No, he's always chasing us. There isn't anything you've done. There isn't anything you could do that would cut off God's love for you today. That is profound. And if we haven't run into God's grace, if we haven't turned to God's grace after our failures, we're just going to keep moving away, believing the lies. 
God has revealed in his word that in the face of failures, his grace remains, allowing us to renew. And a lot of us have stories like that. We go, I was walking away. I was going east. I was going east. Oh, man, was I going east. But God in his grace pursued me. And I gave my life back to Christ. And that's where some of us are. A time to renew, maybe for the first time, to come to God in faith. There's something that we learn about the journey. And that is, just because we've had a test doesn't mean that we're never going to be tested again. The tests in faith are like the weights in the workout room. James says this, consider, let's just look at it here on the slide. Consider a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Okay, we got the, the trials or the dumbbell. The, the uh, dumbbells, is that what they're called? Anyways, the weights. I felt like a dumbbell saying that. All right. Uh, it's the weights, right? The trials, the weight. What does it say? Pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's a great word. The word in the Greek there means to stay under. It's the word endure, to stay under the weight of what is hard right now. I want to run out from it. I want God to remove it. But God says, stay under it and let that weight bring you to maturity, to Christ-likeness. That's the beauty of the trial. The trial, perseverance. The perseverance brings about maturity and completeness so that we're not lacking anything. And so the test doesn't just reveal our faith or lack of faith, but it builds and so we can stay in it because we know God is good. We can stay in and under it because we know there's always more grace. We can stay in it because we know, even like Joseph would say, that they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God's going to do something good. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean it's not evil. But God does good through all things. The last thing I want to say, and it's not the main point of this. The main point of this is... God's constant grace, his kindness in the face of failures. But I think there's something big here that we don't want to miss about the choices in our life. They matter. The everyday ones and the once of a lifetime ones. The decisions we make matter. Abram had a decision to make. He could have solved the problem by saying, look, here's the deal. I'm taking this and you get that. But in his grace and growing faith, he deferred because he didn't want anybody confused on who was going to give him that land. He knew God was going to do that. Lot's decision was all about what he saw. It was all about his eyes. He made a decision for himself. Abram he, his eyes were, and the Bible will talk about it, his, his eyes were on a city that is built by God. He was seeing by faith. Lot was seeing by sight. Abram was making a decision where he actually deferred the choice and gave it away. And Lot, it says in the text, chose for himself. The Bible says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And lean not on your own understanding. 
In all your ways, acknowledge him, God, and he'll make your path straight. I wonder if we are doing life operating out of faith or out of just leaning on ourselves, trying to figure it out. You don't have to lean on yourself to figure it out. God will make a way in whatever's hard right now. So I was thinking about this whole thing of Lot living on the outskirts. And it reminded me of a country song I just heard the other day. It's not like I listen to a lot, but I listened to this song and I thought, this is a crazy song. I got to get the lyrics to it. Didn't know when I was going to use it. And like I was cleaning out emails and I go, there it is. So Craig Campbell's song, Outskirts of Heaven. You know what? Let me give you a couple of lyrics from it. Now it says in the King James, in the Almighty's kingdom, he mentions a mansion that he's built just for me. Now I'd gladly trade it for a farmhouse and acreage and a backyard that's shaded and a squeaky front porch swing. That's where I want to hang my wings. The wings thing, I don't get that. Anyways, where's that in the Bible? So here's the, here's the chorus. When I die, I want to live on the outskirts of heaven where there's dirt roads for miles, hay in the fields and fish in the river. Where there's dogwood trees and honeybees and blue skies and green grass forever. So, Lord, when I die, I want to live on the outskirts of heaven. Yeah, yeah, the good Lord knows me. He knows I need blue skies and green grass forever. Lord, when I die, I want to live on the outskirts of heaven. Yeah, when I die, on the outskirts of heaven. Some of us are living on the outskirts on the edges, trying to get enough of God's blessing as we can and enjoy as much of the world's pleasures that we can. God in his grace is saying, come back. There's actually far more for you in my presence, in a life of faith. Psalm 16, at his right hand are pleasures forever. Friends, as we deal with failures in our lives, may we never forget the kindness of God that is constant, that we would renew our trust in him, grow it strong. As we seek to be part of this story, Abraham would be blessed that through him, all the nations, the families would be blessed. Fundamentally, that's in Christ. And as his body, may the blessings of God move forward as we live in faith. Let's pray. Father God, we bless you for your word, for this good reminder of who you are, a good and gracious God. In the midst of all that is inconsistent in our lives, you are constant. And we pray, Father, that we wouldn't believe the lies, that there's things that we've done, there's decisions that we've made that would preclude us from ever being able to enjoy life with you or the life that you intended for us. And so, Father, would you grant faith? Would you renew our faith? Would you strengthen our faith that we might be people who have been blessed by your grace 
and fitting dispensers of that as we live in this world. Grow our hearts to be more generous as we continue to trust your promises. All of them are yes in your son, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray, amen.